Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. Today, I want to talk about the Wildman's Thanksgiving. That's not Wildman, that's Wildman. The Wildman Thanksgiving. A few years ago, Jim Wildman took his family for a year abroad. And while they were in France for a time, he, his wife, and three sons went to a soccer match in Spain, in Barcelona. On their way back home, as they were getting back into France, they stopped for lunch. Now, as they were sitting at their table eating, Jim glanced out the window and he noticed his car lights were flashing. Not a good sign, so he went to check, and he tells, I'll quote him, he says, as I get closer, I start to see shattered glass on the ground, and as I walk to the back of the car, I see that all our stuff is gone, our bags, our blankets, laptops, digital cameras. Thankfully, we had our passports and phones with us in our pockets, but everything else was gone. We were shaken, he says. We were shaken, completely violated. Our world had fallen apart, and not just because our stuff had been taken. This was such a violation of the spirit of our trip. You know, we went to see the world, and the world struck back. Every victim of a crime, like a break-in, knows how it rocks you emotionally to the core. If it happens on a trip when you're already out of your comfort zone and a little on edge, well, the inner turmoil is unbearable. And then, sort of out of the blue, Jim remembers something. He says... This is the day before Thanksgiving. And I think to myself, my family is shaken. We are in need of fellowship. We need Thanksgiving. You see, Thanksgiving, as Jim recognized, is not just about a big meal, as nice as a big meal might be. It's about reconnecting with your roots, celebrating and reliving traditions that transport you to a happier time, remembering what no one can take away from you. The psalmist keeps saying over and over, remember, 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 as you're going through all these traumas and tragedies in life, remember how the Lord has been good to you. Remember how how God has, has led you, you know, brought you into, into procession into the house of God. Remember the feasts and the festivals. Remember what God has done and what God can do. And as Jim Wildman also realized, it's also about sitting down with other people. He says we need fellowship. It's sitting down with other people, family and friends, to break bread together, and to reaffirm the goodness and the faithfulness of God. That's 
what something like Thanksgiving can represent, especially when you are emerging from a trauma, when you need fellowship, you need Thanksgiving. But there was a problem. You see, the French do not celebrate Thanksgiving. At least not when and how Americans do. It is an American holiday about colonists in America and Native Americans in New England featuring uniquely American foods. As someone who's lived in Europe for many years, I know how hard it is to celebrate Thanksgiving there. You know, it's not easy to find turkey. They don't have turkeys, that's an American bird. Or sweet potatoes, or corn on the cob, or pumpkin pie, or cranberry sauce. They don't have it. So where will Jim Wildman and his family find Thanksgiving in Europe? And he realizes he has to find some Americans. So he continues, I quote him again, so I pull out my phone, start Googling churches in southern France with expat communities. And I found this guy who was a pastor of a church in Carcassonne, France. He answers his phone. And I, I just story vomit. You know, blah, we're broken, we're traveling around the world. Oh, hi, this is Jim Wildman. We're looking for an American family who plans to celebrate Thanksgiving tomorrow. Do you have anybody in your congregation or anybody that you know who would be doing that and who would let us come? So this guy says, Wildman goes on, This guy says, I do. They're new missionaries from Texas. Don't know what they're doing, but you should give them a call. So, boom, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I call uh, this number. Hello? Hi? Is this Angie Clark? Yes. So then again, story vomit, he says. Hi, this is Jim Wildman. We've just been robbed. We really need Thanksgiving. Do you know of anybody that's celebrating Thanksgiving tomorrow? And there's a pause. And she says, I guess that'd be us. Jim concludes, they weren't even planning on celebrating Thanksgiving. But once she heard from me, she decided that they were going to do Thanksgiving. The next day, there was an American-style Thanksgiving. There was turkey, there was dressing, there there were cranberries. Jesus knew how important it is to sit down and eat together. People have always said, you know, every time church people get together, they're always eating. I'm, I probably don't need it, but I think we probably need more food around here. <laughs> Just because we eat together doesn't mean we have to eat a lot, okay? You know. 
but, but it was important for Jesus to eat with people. It was, it was one of the fundamental pillars of his ministry. He would teach, he would heal, and he would eat with undesirables like tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners. Because, you see, eating together looked forward to that day, that great feast, when, as he said, many will come from east and west and sit at table with Abraham and the patriarchs and the prophets in the kingdom of God. And the feast, of course, as you know, is even better when everybody brings something, something a little different, when everybody shares what they have. So more than once, Jesus encouraged his followers to give up their possessions and share everything with the poor and the disadvantaged and to live together sharing what they had. That's the way the first disciples lived as they wandered the countryside with Jesus. That's what the early church did too. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 35 describes how they took care of each other. I'm sure you know these verses. Almost by heart. Acts chapter 4, starting at 32. Let's read it. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, a lot of the disciples were not from Jerusalem. All these guys from Galilee, they weren't from Jerusalem. And they didn't have homes in Jerusalem. Rather, they lived with local converts who opened up their homes to their new brothers and sisters in the faith. And we're told how they all ate together regularly, sharing what they had. And when someone had surplus property or an inheritance that they didn't need, instead of hoarding it, they shared it with the whole church so nobody would be hungry or homeless. Now, by the way, this is a little different from expecting the government to take everything you have and give it to, to the poor. There's no spiritual benefit in that. The spiritual benefit comes in the letting go and sharing. And that's what concerns Jesus, and that's what concerns the church. You see, it's a principle. When someone is in need, you share what you have. Right? Talk to me. <laughs> so as the gospel spread and new churches were springing up all over the place, we don't know how far or for how long they kept this sort of commune way of life. But we do know believers regularly opened their homes to put up traveling apostles and, and missionaries and other travelers. 
You know, those young missionaries from Texas that Jim Wildman mentions, they understood that. That radical hospitality was and is one central thing Jesus expects of his followers. That's something Jesus expects of you and me. Radical hospitality. So ten years later, in the early church, when a prophet from Jerusalem shows up in Antioch with a dire warning, the church knows it has to do something. Let's look briefly at Acts 11. And we'll start at verse 27, Acts 11, verse 27. At that time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine over all the world. And this took place during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending it to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So Agabus comes to visit, and during worship he prophesies that there's going to be a series of famines. And there was, in fact, a series of local famines he says during the reign of Claudius. Well, there were a series of famines during the entire reign of Claudius. It didn't just happen once during, while Claudius was emperor. It was like almost every year there was a famine in a different part of the empire through that whole, his whole reign that lasted about 10 years. <coughs> uh, Rome was hit in, in the years 41 and 42 and then again in 51 A.D. Greece had a severe famine in 49 A.D. Now Palestine was especially hard hit from 46 through 48 A.D. And that was especially tough because 47 A.D. was supposed to be a Sabbath year when the fields were all supposed to lie fallow. So one of the interesting things, Agabus does not tell them to help. He simply alerts them to the coming famines. But the church, the believers, the Christians in Antioch took that as a call to action to collect and send as much aid as they could to their brothers and sisters in Judea, in Palestine. That is, if you have, you reach out to those who don't. It's just part of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, Paul did not forget this experience. So later, he makes plans Oh, probably a little over 10 years after that, he makes plans for his own Gentile mission churches to take up a collection for the mother church in Jerusalem. For him, it's a, 
uh, a symbol of the fulfillment of the prophetic promises that the riches of the Gentiles are going to stream into Jerusalem, and it is a symbol of the unity and the solidarity of Jew and Gentile in Christ Jesus. And so he takes up this offering for Jerusalem. And he talks a little bit about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians 8, we'll start at verse 8. I do not say this as a command, but I'm testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I'm giving my advice. It is appropriate for you, who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something, now finish doing it so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what what one does not have. I don't mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it's a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. Paul reminds us, Jesus, who was infinitely rich, the very Son of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself of his very divine glory and godhood so that you could be made rich in the gospel. You have been entrusted with all the riches of glory in the heavenly places. He died so you can live. And I am never, never going to reduce that simply to the shallow level of saying, well, God wants you to have lots of possessions. Jesus died for more than my material wants and wishes and and plans. He did not go to the cross so I could have a boat or a bigger car or something else. He went to the cross to save my imperiled soul. And I don't know anything that really compares to that. Sorry, that wasn't in my manuscript. I got off off script on that one. But he died so you could live and have those riches of glory in Christ Jesus. 
So how, how can you respond? By showing the same generosity and hospitality to others in their need, both in their spiritual need and in their physical need. If they're hungry, if they're needy, if they're lonely, if they're traumatized. Because never fear, Paul reminds us, never fear. It's all going to work out in the end. Now, your plenty, if you happen to have plenty, your plenty can help others in need. Later, when they've recovered, their plenty can help you when you're in need. That's the principle. And that's the way God planned it. One hand washes the other. Those who have only one hand know how hard it is to get that hand clean and dry. One part of the body cares for another. I guarantee you, you will not trim your toenails without your hand. Well, okay, maybe if you're very flexible, you might do it with your teeth. But it's still one part caring for the other. One part caring for the other in your body. It's the same way in the body of Christ. And it's never, because you see, the body of Christ, the people of God, it's never just a matter of things or food or money. Because even in our generosity and hospitality, as with Jesus, it's about the relationships that are being forged and strengthened and deepened. Kingdom relationships beginning here and now and extending from here into eternity. The very first Thanksgiving celebration in the New World was not really about turkey and dressing, and it really wasn't about parades and football. It was about surviving, recovering from a trauma, and celebrating the people who survived with you, and the people who helped you survive. They had reason to be thankful, that small band of, sur of, of survivors there, half of, well, roughly half of them were English Puritans. That is, some of them were Congregationalists and others were Presbyterians who'd fled to Holland in 1608 to escape religious persecution, only to find, as William Bradford put it, ye grim and grisly face of poverty coming upon them like an armed man. With the financial backing of German Presbyterians, 41 of them joined with 61 so-called strangers to emigrate to the New World, where life had to be better. And after a rough passage, they, they ended up landing at the site of an abandoned Indian village, which had been annihilated by disease. It was November, when they arrived they had little left to eat, and by spring of the original 102 colonists, only 55 had survived, 55. 
at the end of their first year, those few had cause to celebrate. They were still alive. That fall, Edward Winslow wrote, Our harvest being gathered in, our governor set four men on fowling so that we might after a more special manner rejoice together. They four in one day killed as much fowl as, with a little help besides, served the company almost a week. At which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and amongst the rest, their greatest king, Massasoit, with some 90 men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation. It was a week in autumn, 1621. Presumably, the Puritan colonists would have said prayers of thanks, sung a psalm or two, but of course most of the survivors, a majority of the survivors, were not Puritans. Thanksgiving celebrates the providence of God. Now, we picture Puritans in clean starched linens and gray flannel suits. With those, with those beautifully white, the, the women with those beautifully white, white aprons that have been all carefully pressed. Uh, and we see them hale and satisfied and arm wrestling with noble Native American youths. <clears throat> and they're a model of, of determination and self-reliance. How, and we, we hear how by hard work and faith in God they'd prospered. That's not how it was. Remember, in 1621, there really wasn't anything such as clean clothes in the colonies. There was no starch. They did not have clean linens. They were gaunt. They were hungry. They were struggling but they were alive. You see, providence doesn't work that way. If you're going to trust God for your daily bread, it means it's daily. You can only live one day at a time and you take each day for what it is. God provides at each crucial juncture, but only what is needed and when it is needed. God's providence is a way of life which has nothing to do with self-reliance. You're not relying on yourself if you're going to be relying on God. The trip across the Atlantic had been paid for by others. The seed corn for the first harvest had been found in an abandoned Indian hut. It was an Indian who had lost all of his people to the epidemic who taught them how to survive in the new world. The colonists' own crops of English wheat, barley, and peas 
failed. Only the native crops were successful. When the Indians arrived for the feast, outnumbering the colonists two to one, they saw that the food wasn't going to suffice, and so they brought their own. It was a potluck affair. That is, God provided for the pilgrims. But how did he do it? With and through other people. So their plenty helped make up the pilgrims' need. Thanksgiving celebrates our connectedness in the purposes and plan of God through the self-giving of Christ. That connectedness in grateful faith heals broken hearts. Thanksgiving is a festival of sharing and interdependence. Our dependence on the Lord and upon one another as his chosen channels of care and supply. And we say, thank you, Lord, for the plenty on the table. Thank you, Lord, that we've survived another year. Thank you for Jesus Christ who became poor so we might receive the heavenly riches. Thank you, Lord, for meeting our true needs. Thank you, Lord, for those who gather with us around the table. If you're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving with your family, if you might have an extra chair or two, Think if you know anyone who might be alone this Thanksgiving and invite them to join you. Just a suggestion. Reflecting on that spontaneous Thanksgiving abroad in their time of deep trauma, Jim Wildman concludes, and let me share these thoughts with you from Jim. He said, we took sort of a selfie portrait of all of us at the table. And that is one of the most meaningful pictures from our 12 months abroad. It taught us one of the most important lessons. We set out to see places, but now when we think back on milestone moments from that trip, it's about the people that we met and the people that opened their hearts and their homes to us when we were in need. And we will never forget it. We will never forget it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you clothe the lilies, feed the birds, place them in their nests. You paint the autumn leaves and lift the moon above the mountain crests. You set the limit for the sea and time the spinning of the earth. All the wonders of this world, the mysteries of death and birth, everything is yours, and yet... You do not want to hold and hoard. With both hands eagerly you fling your favors all around us, Lord. 
one more thing we ask you to do. Make us as generous. Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.